can't hear the music. Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Lewis Miller. The mission of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is to stimulate thought, expand consciousness, and encourage community. I say encourage community because I believe that human beings are basically friendly animals, and we live together where we know each other, where we recognize each other's faces. We're collaborative we're a collaborative species, and we sustain one another. Mind, Body, Health, and Politics is a program which intends to stimulate your thought, expand your consciousness, and encourage community, as I stated. The very top of my list of topics is income inequality, and we'll be talking about that to a certain extent today with our guest, John DeGraff. My other topics are climate change, nuclear proliferation, environmental regeneration, obesity, racism, gender, inequality, single motherhood, human sexuality, psychedelic medicine, health benefits and nutrition, exercise, human emotion, and gratitude. Today, we're going to be talking with John DeGraff about some of these topics because he's a filmmaker who's covered many of them. The United States has the highest level of income inequality amongst its peers. The top 20% earn 52% of all income, while the bottom 20% earn 3%. The top 1% own 15 times as much as the bottom 50% combined. The top 1% owns more of the country's wealth than at any time in the past 50 years. The economic and political impacts of inequality include a slower gross domestic product, reduced income mobility, higher poverty rates, greater usage of household debt to pay bills, and it leads to a risk of financial crisis and political polarization, which we are seeing very much in this era. In 2013, the famous magazine The Economist stated that out of any highly developed nation in the world, the U.S. had the highest after-tax level of income inequality with a Gini coefficient of 0.42, as an aside, what's the Gini coefficient? It's a measure of the distribution of income across a population. It was developed by the uh, Italian statistician Corrado Gini in 1912. It's often used as a gauge of economic inequality. And yes, we 
have the highest level of income inequality. With a host of social ills correlated with high levels of income inequality, the nation's level of income inequality is largely affected by government policies concerning taxation and labor. 68% of all income growth in the last 20 years has gone to the top 1% of earners. Should I say that again? 68% of all growth in the last year's income growth has gone to the top 1%. Historically, America's current income tax was first introduced in 1913. The income tax was introduced under the guise of equity, justice, and fairness. But the new income tax did little to level the playing field between the rich and the poor. Why? Because the new income tax did little to put a cap on income. It was evidenced by the low marginal tax rate of 7%, 7% on your income over $500,000 back then, which in this era would be over $12 million. In other words, you made the first $12 million a year free, and then you paid 7%. That income inequality continued to rise. It continued to rise. The top rate of, of, uh, of income tax started to go up. It finally reached a high of 73%, but that was on incomes over a million dollars. During the Great Depression, the tax rates were increased, and by 1944, the rate was 94%, but that started at an income of over 200000 which today would be $3 million. So in other words, your first $3 million in income was free, but then you were charged 94%. Those high rates do act as a cap on income as it discourages individuals from negotiating additional income above the rate at which the tax would apply. In other words, if you're paying 94% above $3 million, why make much more than $3 million? So that puts a cap, and it keeps income equality from getting worse. That, that high tax rate remained high for almost four decades. It fell to 70% from 94 in, in, in 1965, and subsequently fell to 50% in 1982. Now, during the Great Depression, income inequality came down from its peak in 1929, and it was stable with the richest 1% taking approximately 15% of total income uh, between 1930 and 1941, and it stayed stable, and it stayed stable for three decades, and they called that period of income compression the Great Compression right? That's contrasting it with a Great Depression or a Great Recession, a compression. So there was less income inequality. So those of us who grew up in the 50s and were middle class, we didn't feel this gigantic disparity between us and the upper, and neither did the lower because there was more of a compression. And during that same time, union workers had much more bargaining power. And Attendance in, in, in unions and participation ranged between 25 and 35 percent from 1945 to the 1970s. Labor union membership protects the little guys, but after 1972, uh, 78, I beg your pardon, 
it started to fall, and it fell from around 25 to 35 percent to 11 percent in 2011. In other words, while the three decades following World War II was an era of shared prosperity, the declining strength of the unions has met with a situation in which labor productivity has doubled, but the median wages for those folks has only increased by 4%. At the same time, the marginal tax rate dropped from 70 to 50 in 1982 and then to 38 in 1987, and in the past 30 years, it's fluctuated between 28 and 39, which it currently is. So you get the picture. The tax rate has gone down, for the, and therefore the rich are affected. And the participation in labor unions has gone down, which has made it harder for those making wages to get an increase. This decline in union membership and the reduction of marginal tax rates coincides with the vast increase in income inequality, which has come to be called the Great Divergence. The Great Divergence. History can be a helpful guide to this present. Far from accepting the current situation as inevitable, a history of income inequality is evidence that government policies can tilt the balance of economic compensation for both the rich and the poor. See, if the government were to to support labor unions and change the tax code, we could compress this vast inequality. The last 35 years have been disproportionately favorable to the wealthy, and the fact that greater income inequality has been correlated with higher levels of crime, stress, mental illness, obesity, and some other social ills. I think many of you have heard me talk on this program about the fact that for the first time in history, life expectancy is going down in this country. It's about time to start leveling the playing field once again. Perhaps today's guest, John DeGraff, can offer some insights on how we might level the huge income inequality that has turned our country into what we used to think of as a South American country. I remember that as a kid, we used to point to those South American countries and say, oh, the 1% at the top and everybody else below. Or ancient Egypt, where the 1% ruled and the other 99% were slaves. You can begin to know today's guest, John DeGraff, by my doing something I've never done before. I've had people on who've written books and made films and so on, but I, I am so awed by what John has done that as a way of starting to get to know him, I'm going to read to you some of his book titles and the name of just 10 of his 40-plus films. His books, Affluenza, How Overconsumption is Killing Us and How to Fight Back. And I'm going to want to talk to him about Affluenza today. I just love the title, Affluenza, right? Number two, What's the Economy for Anyway? Another book, 
why it's time to stop chasing growth and start pursuing happiness. Number four, take back your time. John has a lot of concerns about how we're using our time, how we're overworking and leaving nothing for ourselves, and how we're out of balance. Now, listen to the names of some of John DeGraff's films, and I'm only going to read 10 of of more than 40. The Silent Killer, The Uncommon Campaign Against Hunger, Buyer Be Fair, The Promise of Food Certification, The Genetic Time Bomb, How the Loss of Genetic Diversity in Seeds Threatens Our Future, Hot Potatoes, A Violent Strain of Blight Threatened Potato Crops Around the World, Running Out of Time, The Growing Problem of Time Famine and Overwork. Remember I mentioned how he's so concerned about time and how we use it. On Nature's Terms, People and Predators Coexisting in Harmony. The Circle of Plenty, Master Gardener, John Jevons of Ukiah. For Earth's Sake, The Life and Times of David Brower, and many of you know him. The Garden Song, Portrait of Alan Chadwick, many of you know him, the inventor of biodynamic French intensive method of gardening. And the Motherhood Manifesto. The latest film that John is working on is about the American environmental protection pioneer and secretary of the interior under both Presidents Kennedy and Johnson, Stuart Udall. So how's that for a beginning, Uv? Welcome to Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, John. Good to be on your program. Thank you very much. John, I, I hardly know where to begin uh, with, uh, with you've done so much, but I think I'd like to start by talking about uh, affluenza. Sure. Tell us about affluenza. How did it come about? And what do you want to share with us about it? Well, it seems that that in the um, in the nineties we had in the Clinton time we had a period of sort of unparalleled prosperity. There was uh, still great inequality, but it was getting a little bit less during that period for for a short period. And we had enormous prosperity, and the whole idea was that we would just keep getting richer and richer and piling on more and more stuff. But we were also seeing a rise in depression, in various kinds of problems associated really with this this constant drive to produce and consume more material goods. And I became aware of that. I'd been aware of it for quite some time. Uh, but I had a, 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 a someone come to me and say, "Well, I can get you some support to do a documentary on this uh, this subject." And then the term affluenza came up in a way. It's a kind of a joke. It's combining two terms, affluence and influenza, to look at a sort of a disease of overconsumption, if you will. And it allowed us to to approach it that way. What are the symptoms of this problem of extreme materialism that uh, the United States was involved in? And the, those uh, symptoms were many, uh, including things like overwork and, and stress and... Um, extreme competitiveness and and so many other things that we called shopping fever, for example. Uh, 
Uh, and then we looked at the, the history of this disease. How did we get there? What were the policies and things that led to that? And finally, we looked at possible solutions uh, in things like a downshifting, the, the voluntary simplicity movement, which was big at that time, and potential government policies that could, could help us move to greater equality and less emphasis on material things in our lives. I, in your book, uh, there's one uh, definition here of affluenza that I want to read. A painful, contagious, socially transmitted condition of overload, debt, anxiety, and waste resulting from the dogged pursuit of more. The dogged pursuit of more. How did we get into this dogged pursuit of more, John? Well, uh, you know, as, as a country, we've always been pretty interested in gaining wealth and in wealth. Even de Tocqueville talks about this as early as the 1830s, that the U.S. was more focused on, on wealth and material things than, for example, the countries of, of Europe. Um, uh, we had a, a great period, the Gilded Age, in the late uh, 1800s the latter quarter of the, the 1800s in which we were totally focused on the, the, the stuff, on, on, on material progress, and we saw much greater inequality. That uh, resulted in a response, the progressive era, which uh, fought to, to change some of that, to change the different values and so forth. And then we came, uh, came the Depression where we, you know, we really knew what poor was, and, and millions were out of work. Uh, and, and then the war in which rationing meant that people could not consume at high levels. And what that resulted in was a great amount of savings that people had, which then uh, the, the producers and the advertisers in particular took advantage of after the war to kind of create the consumer society to... Uh, teach us that the good life was the good life, goods life, uh, was having and consuming. And we show that in the film and talk about it in the book. So there was huge push from psychology and advertising and other things to get Americans to, to be better consumers. And that was the idea that actually in a capitalist system, we really needed to do that in order to keep the economy humming. People always had to want more, buy more, uh, consume more. And uh, it, the, the results of that, you, you know, so long as inequal, uh, e uh, inequality was being reduced, which it was in the 1960s and into the early 1970s, was not as serious. But once we that changed, and particularly in the 80s, we saw a period in which wealth was glorified no matter whether it was being shared in any way, shape, or form. And we, we saw a takeoff of very, very wealthy people who then became the models in the TV shows like Dallas and others became came the model that we all ought to aspire to. And uh, so we, we created, you know, the age of affluenza, I would call it, uh, at that time. And in that period, after World War II, between that period and the time we made the film in 1997, the consumption of people in the United States uh, and the use of resources was greater than that of all human beings who ever lived in all of time, everywhere in the world, uh, previously to this 
40 some year period in the United States. So that just indicates how much we consume. And we consume to the level at which we as Americans were really using up about five times of, uh, as much as we could sustain, as, as the earth could sustain if everybody on the earth were consuming that much. So we had a, just a massive, uh, uh, and, and then we got a response and a, a reaction to it, but we're still pushing it. Uh, the Trump administration was the greatest example, I think, of actually deliberately promoting affluenza, you know, of promoting luxury, of promoting super wealth, of cutting taxes for the very rich, doing all of those kind of things and actually glorifying it rather than being ashamed of it. Well, he certainly was the epitome of it when we hear that he had, uh, you know, solid gold uh, buckles uh, on the seatbelts in his plane. Uh, no question about it. But it sounds from what you're saying like the really, really big push for consumerism started after World War II. However, the, the income inequality, the, the seeds of it, have been growing uh, even before that, uh, as I pointed out in my introduction, because of the tax codes that so uh, heavily favored the wealthy. So, you know, we seem to have a combination push here. Uh, the, the tax codes favor the wealthy. The unions, which try to help the little guy get pushed down, and they've decreased, and then what you're pointing out is a massive push towards consumerism. And what about, is there any push in our culture towards something other as a value system than consumerism? Is there any kind of push towards connecting with other people as a value, towards community and civic responsibility as a value? What do you see there, John, in your travels? Well, I think there have been, certainly at various periods in American history, and I actually have written about this. I, I sort of look at American history as a, a period of up and downs of, 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 of periods of time in which America focuses on what I call the bread, that is the stuff, the money, all this kind of thing. And then subsequent periods of time in which we sort of respond to that and we uh, and we emphasize the roses the non-material side of life time community friendships and so forth so you see this sort of thing you see you know ex explosions of wealth like the gilded age followed by its reaction uh, the period of the progressive era which was also very focused on community building, on quality of life, on connection with nature. Uh, we got a lot of our early environmental laws through that, on uh, shortening work time so that people would have time for their lives. So many, uh, the income tax itself, of course, not very strong, but it was passed during that progressive area. Controls on corporations. And then um, after, the, after the war, we get this big, uh, quick and very quick buildup of, of uh, wealth and interest in wealth and so forth. And that produces a response in the 60s where there was a great new focus on living more simply, on building community, on sharing with others, on nature, on all of these kinds of things. So we see these, these 
this back and forth uh, process is common, this war of the ro bread and the roses uh, in our history. And, and uh, the, the Trump era to me represented the, the, maybe the last great triumph of the focus on bread. And I'm hoping that now we're going to move into an era where we start thinking again about community building, about nature, about uh, connection, about time, uh, even the, the simple things like family leave and sick leave and, and things that, that the Biden administration are proposing are, are moves in that direction. So I'm hoping that we are now moving in a period away from the focus on affluenza toward the focus on community connection, nature, and all the things that I'm about. Do you still think that we have time, a favorite topic of yours, do we have time to turn this giant boat, this giant country around? Do we have time? Right now, 72% of the United States are rather overweight or obese. And for the first time in recorded history, the percentage of people who are obese is greater than the percentage of people who are overweight. And when you think about that, that that's, that's really unusual because you see weight as going up, so you move up from normal, and then you'd think you move up to overweight and then you move up to obese. It's the next step up. And if you're going by the BMI, if you're over 25, you're in overweight. And if you're over 30, you're in obese. But the country has jumped, skipped, if you will, and the percentage of obese is even greater than the percentage of overweight, 72%. Now, my colleagues, John, predict, my, uh, uh, the statisticians predict, that at the current rate of growth, no pun intended, 87% of the country will be obese or overweight by the year 2030. That's only nine years away. That's a, that's, I see that symptom as connected to what you've been telling us about in your books and your movies for your entire life. I see that symptom as in addition to the consumerism that you talk about in affluenza, I don't, I don't know if, if, if the obesity overweight epidemic, and it is an epidemic and it may be a pandemic, I don't know, I don't know if that is an outgrowth of affluenza or whether that's pushing affluenza, but it's, it's, uh, it's very large and it's uh, doing a lot of damage. You care to comment on that? Yeah, well, well, certainly that's a, is an enormous problem. There's no question about it. I suffer from it myself, so I know. Um, and uh, I think, for one thing, uh, lack of time and the, the, the amount that we work compared to, say, Europeans, has meant that people don't take enough time to exercise. They don't take enough time to eat right. They're sort of always in a hurry. We are rush, 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 whether it's long working hours or then rushing to try to get as much into our lives uh, outside of work. And that's a symptom of affluenza, this drive for more, 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 because we seem to be bored uh, with our lives. I think that's a huge problem. And of course, we also fa face the existential issue of climate change. So you're right that we, we don't have a lot of time. Can we turn the boat around? 
I don't know. I, I think the odds are a little better since the election. Uh, if if we uh, re-elected Trump and another four years of what was going on, I uh, I would have been ready to say no, no chance to, to turn this around. But I think we do have that chance. Uh, certainly programs like yours, certainly increases in consciousness that we're seeing in many places. People are becoming more aware. And uh, if we can get the climate crisis, we're never going to completely alleviate all the problems that the climate crisis, the obesity crisis, and all these things cause for us. We're going to have to have some resilience to that because it, we're going to suffer anyway. But if we if we can keep it more minimal, um, then I think we have a chance to muddle through and to create a much better society. And that's that's my hope. That's what what all of my work tries to promote. Yes. Well, you know, the, the obesity is is uh, is is high on my on my uh, list of topics to to talk about uh, for many reasons and. When I started to read and look at your work and considered affluenza the drive for more, and as you describe how we have been cajoled, coaxed, uh, sold, advertised, pushed for more, the, just the word more, I love how you put that, the, the drive for more, part of the advertising to consume has gone towards the consumption of food. Now, when you tie that in psychologically with what you point out is the result of affluenza, namely a sense of anxiety and isolation that you don't really get fulfilled, as you pointed out in your work, you don't really, I mean, that, that beautiful scene uh, in, in, in your movie uh, that I saw where the woman goes to the doctor and, and she says, I don't understand it, doctor. You know, I, I, I've got several cars. I just got a raise. I live in a big house. Uh, I've got all the clothes I want, but yet I feel terrible. And I feel empty, etc., etc. And the doctor looks at her very seriously and he says, yes, you're suffering from a very serious uh, illness you're suffering from affluenza and and uh, th that was so beautifully done and the drive for more has also of course pushed not only pushed us to eat more but connected to what you're pointing out as another result of affluenza which is a feeling of isolation and a feeling of emptiness inside psychologically then lends itself to us eating even more as a way of filling ourselves because the cars and the rays and the house and the clothes, etc., don't fill us. So it's sort of a double whammy into the, into the consumption of calories of a uh, 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 concept. Are you with me on that? Oh, yeah, I think so. Uh, and of course, the food is different too, in a way. Uh, more processed food, more kinds of foods that are, uh, and, and I, I looked at this in the mid '80s. I worked on on, on films and uh, and programs related to the whole issue of what was happening to our food, the 
in the feedlots and things like that, and how we were filling animals with, with um, not only antibiotics and all those things, but growth hormones and things, which then seems seemed to, uh, many of the people were saying in those days, also have an effect on making us grow bigger as we were eating these kinds of foods. And as we were eating more and more, uh, more and more processed foods, less whole grains and all of those things, I think there has been a shift back, but the shift back is by not the majority of the people and the majority of the people are sort of still on the treadmill. And, and, but I also think that the lack of exercise uh, plays a big factor in this and, and the lack of, of, of sufficient sleep so that people who are anxious don't sleep well, they may not sleep long enough because of pushing everything in, into the course of their day. And I think one thing we do know is that that when you don't sleep well and you don't process that also, uh, I, I mean, you're, you're, you're a medical expert on this, but I think that that also adds to the potential for obesity. Time to exercise is related to income inequality. Time to sleep is related to income inequality. Yes. And the ability to be able to buy clean food is directly related to income inequality. The yes. People who make a substantial amount of money can buy clean food. They can buy organic vegetables. They can buy organic meat, organic chicken, organic, etc., etc. People who have much less money are subject to buying what you just pointed out, the processed junk that's being sold and all kinds of junk. One that's of, right. I agree. One of the of the many wonderful topics that you have brought out for us to see is the topic of how time relates to our lives. And I'd like you to talk some, please, now, about time. Sure. Uh, well, one of the things that many Americans aren't aware of is that, that not only do we have the greatest inequality in the, in the, the rich world in, among countries like ours, I mean, there are a few countries like Brazil and others that have even greater inequality, but the countries that are like us in Europe, Japan, and so forth, uh, we have by far the greatest in income inequality, and we work the longest hours. Now, for many years, the United States was decreasing the hours worked. This lasted up until about nine, the mid-1970s, and then things began to change. Until the mid-1970s, we were reducing our hours. People had more time. I studied at the University of Wisconsin in 1968. I had a sociology class in which we were told that the big problem in the future would be too much leisure time, that with all the labor-saving devices, we'd be working so so little that we wouldn't know what to do with ourselves. I remember what that. We, what we found is that we are actually working longer hours today than we were in 1970. And the push for uh, inequality has forced that. The people at the bottom have, have, to, have had to work more just to keep up. And the people at the top are actually working a lot more, too, because of the great wealth and, and other things that it seems to give them. It, it's seen as an opportunity cost if you don't work more and make all that money that you can make. So the other thing about that is, as a country, 
we are the only Western country that has no protections for things like, for example, parental leave, maternity leave. We're the only, there's only one other country in the world, I think Papua New Guinea, that doesn't at least require paid maternity leave uh, for mothers. And most Western countries also require uh, paid leave for fathers when, when you have a baby. Secondly, sick leave. The United States is the only developed countries in country in which you don't get paid when you're sick by law. You know that you uh, and so we tell people, oh, if you're sick, stay home, et cetera, et cetera. Don't go out and all of that. But then we also fire 10,000 people a year because they didn't come to work when they were sick, uh, and because we have no protection again uh, uh, for for sick days for people. And thirdly, we are the only. Um, Western nation, in fact, one of uh, only five nations in the entire world that does not have a paid vacation law, so that people are not guaranteed any time off with pay. And this especially affects people at the bottom of the income pyramid. If you look at it, it's about a third of the American population does not get any paid vacation. Almost all of those people are poor folks who are working in the jobs that are minimum wage or, or slightly higher and so forth. The very wealthy, get they get their four to six weeks. But in, in Europe, everybody gets at least four weeks by law from the first year on the job. Uh, you, you know, it's common around the world for people to get four to six weeks of paid vacation time. This is huge because this is a period in which people can de-stress, can, uh, you know, and, and it takes sometimes time to de-stress. Uh, one study in Israel found that, you know, it took at least two weeks to, to start to get back into a, into a normal rhythm. And that if people don't have that period of time each year, they will surely burn out. There will enormous uh, health effects. So I think we're looking at a country that has, does not take leisure time seriously, time, time at all seriously. My film, The Motherhood Manifesto, was about the difference in the United States and in other Western countries for working mothers. Working mothers have many other benefits in those countries, uh, including uh, paid family leave, including various other kinds of supports, um, child care, all these things. In the United States, it's uh, lack of community means fend for yourself. Lack, <laughs> lack of community means fend, fend for yourself. I don't know which book to ask you about uh, uh, first now, uh, the, the, more about the Motherhood Manifesto or I was focusing in as you were talking on take back your time, take back your time. Well, take back your time was my book. The, the motherhood manifesto was a film I did yes. based on some other people's book. You want to talk a little bit more, even more about take back your time, methods of taking back your time. Yeah. Well, we started that, that grew out of an organization that I, I and others started in 2002. We formed an organization called Take Back Your Time to deal with this epidemic, as we saw it, of overwork in America and its impacts. And at that time, we didn't even really know what some of those impacts or, or rules were, differences um, with other countries, for example. So we started by having a thing we called Take Back Your Time Day in 2003. It was October 24th. We picked that day because it was uh, nine weeks before the end of the year. And it symbolized the fact that on average, Americans were working 
nine more weeks than Western Europeans in total hours each year. Say that, uh, say that once again for our listeners, please. The average American was working about 350 hours more each year than the average European at that time, roughly nine weeks. So we set Take Back Your Time Day as the day in which if a European had worked as much by that day as Americans had worked, they would have the rest of the year off. But we would continue on work. Now, we then discovered by pure chance that October 24th also turned out to be the day in 1938, when the United States officially got the 40-hour week. Uh, so we set up Take Back Your Time Day. We were instantly, uh, we had hundreds of media. I was uh, in the New York Times. I, I was asked to write an editorial for the New York Times. There was a great, <laughs> excuse me, interest in this, uh, uh, this topic. And then as we started going into it, that's when we began to discover all the, the the differences, the laws that we didn't have that other people have, and so we we've really encouraged both things. That number one, uh, people need to try if they can. One of the things we we'd like to see is instead of and and, and people at the bottom can't really do this, but at, at middle income and other levels to start trading salary wages for time decreases, so that you would you would work less instead of getting a five percent pay increase, you might work a few more less days each year, but that would be overall healthier and economically, ultimately more, more productive of uh, equality. We also, of course, wanted for uh, laws because the, the poorest people cannot do that. You know, they can't take the vacation time if they don't get it with pay. So we, uh, we promoted several things. Uh, I uh, helped write a national vacation bill, which was submitted in Congress in 2009. Uh, it went nowhere, but this was kind of typical. And it was a very, was, the bill only called for basically one or two weeks paid vacation time required by law, depending on the size of the company. But it went nowhere. I, I was on Fox News. Um, and before I bash Fox News, which I fully intend to do, um, I want to say that Fox News was the only media who we covered the issue, you know, so to their credit, they cover the issue. But I was I was on Fox News and the host that was television. I was in one studio. He was in another. And he kind of points straight at me in the screen. And he says, you, he says, you want to turn America into a 21st century. And then he paused for emphasis, dri dripping with sarcasm, France. I'm thinking, oh, my God, you know, he he's afraid that we're going to you know, require people to appreciate good food and wine. I mean, <laughs> what, what is the deal here? And I said, well, no, we're not, you know, France gets six weeks of vacation. We're asking for two. It's not the same thing. We think it's important. He backed down a little bit, but it just was an indication of how absurd the discussion is in the United States and how everything favors business, production, profit, and nothing uh, the time that people lead for their lives. I then uh, we then entered the same bill, a little better bill, actually, into the Washington legislature twice. Uh, it went farther. It, it got through committee and stuff, but again, it, it didn't make it. So we still have no laws in the United States that give people any vacation time, except in the Commonwealth of Puerto Rico. 
That's the only exception. In Puerto Rico, you get three weeks of paid time off by law. <laughs> you know, but nowhere in the 48 states is that the case or in any, any American city. So we still think that a lot of this has to happen by law, but then also we have to take time. We have to try to slow down and smell the roses as we, and get out in, the, in nature and not use up all the free time we have in both things like consuming media, which we spend a lot of time doing, but also just, you know, out trying to cram in as many activities as we can. So I'm, I'm talking too long about this right now, but, but this is, um, okay, these are some I'll, of the things I'll, that we deal with. I'll stop you and, and, and keep <laughs> us going a slightly another direction. Okay. John, what's, what's, what's inherently wrong with uh, a six-week vacation? What's inherently wrong with it? Yeah, what's what's wrong I with ha what's wrong with the United States following France and everybody having a six-week vacation? What's wrong with it? In my view, absolutely nothing. The only thing is that our GDP, our gross domestic pro product, won't rise as fast. But that's fine because our gross domestic product is not the measure of well-being for people in this country by a long shot. Uh, in fact, in many ways, the faster it rises, the more it's an indication that we're not dealing with, with a lot of things, that people are having to turn more and more into material stuff to make up for what they don't have uh, otherwise. So uh, uh, there's an Italian economist who's written that. who says Americans' GDP growth is actually a symbol of problems in the society, not a symbol of dy dynamism in the society. But why is that true? Because all the studies, and the other thing I focused on a lot is the subject of human happiness. Uh, worked, I spent uh, some time as an advisor to the government of Bhutan. I went to Bhutan, for example, where oh, their yeah. whole goal as a government is gross national happiness. You lucky, you lucky, lucky, lucky guy that you got in on that. I'm, I'm aware of that. Tell us, talk to us about that. Yeah, well, I got invited to Bhutan as an expert on time balance and time issues. Uh, and that's one of, of nine domains of happiness that they measure in their gross national happiness uh, system. So it's a lot of things. It includes things like uh, equality, education, cu uh, cultural opportunities, nature, uh, you know, and so forth. But one of the things is, is time balance. And so I was in uh, Bhutan was going to make a formal report to the United Nations. It was asked to do that about its concept of gross national happiness, how the rest of the world might follow this instead of being so obsessed with GDP. So I was invited to be part of that group, and we produced a report, um, uh, Happiness Transforming the Global Landscape or the Development Landscape. Uh, and I wrote the uh, co-wrote the chapter on time and co-wrote the final concluding chapter to that report for Bhutan. So I got a chance to meet meet with the prime minister, the cabinet, the king and queen. Uh, and I didn't get to see much of Bhutan because I spent nine days basically in the parliament yeah. building working while I was there. But so great experience and, and just fascinating to see that Bhutan is interested in this kind of thing, which... Um, uh, other countries are starting to get interested in now. We're seeing this a little bit, especially among these young women leaders. 
And that's a really positive thing going on now. So you'd see uh, the leaders of countries like New Zealand, Scotland, Finland, um, these uh, uh, young, young women who really understand that we need to have a completely different kind of society. We need to measure uh, a well-being in a different way from GDP. We need to focus less on stuff and more on, on, uh, on well-being. So uh, I've been very interested in that, that subject, and I think that ties in with all the rest of this. Just increasing our GDP is not the way to progress. How are they doing on feeding their people in Bhutan? Uh, feeding fine. I mean, Bhutan is still a poor country. There's no question about it. And and uh, you know, Bhutan is one of the world's poorest countries, but it's also one of the world's most egalitarian countries. Uh, you don't have a gap, huge gap between rich and poor, in Bhutan. And so you don't see. I didn't really. I didn't see homeless people, for example. They're all over the streets of my city of Seattle. I mean, it, everything is tents. People camping out in the streets. And, and homeless. I didn't see any homeless people in Bhutan. I saw maybe one beggar while I was there. I saw, but the big, major thing I saw was maybe a few people who were drunk. Uh, and drinking is kind of a bit of a social thing. Bhutan's a very communal society, and people do drink socially. They may eat so uh, a lot. You know, it food and drink are part of that social. Uh, thing which in some ways is is a negative impact, but uh, Bhutan is do is it is basically a Scandinavian welfare state in a poor country, so it's a little hard to pull off. They have free education, they have free medical care, uh, they certainly people have adequate food, but they don't have much stuff. I mean, you know, there's not much, many things in a Bhutanese house, the average house. Well, yes. I mean, when you say that there's, uh, you know, income uh, convergence, but if it's convergence and everybody is poor, then that's uh, not something that, uh, that, that uh, you know, we look forward to uh, in exchange for happiness. And that's how some people would see it. Uh, but on the other hand, if you take a country like Denmark, which has a very high happiness quotient, we know for we know for sure that they're not all poor. And no, that's right. And 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 uh, yeah, if you look at world the World Happiness Report, which the UN puts out each year, you will see consistently that the United States, despite its wealth, is dropping year by year. We were number eleven when the first report came out in uh, two thousand eleven. I'm sure that the next report will be be about number 20. I think we were 18th or 19th in the last report. We have been dropping. All the countries that are in the top uh, top 10 and in the top five are Northern European and primarily Scandinavian countries, and then throw in New Zealand and, and Canada. But uh, yeah, Denmark has consistently been at the top of the list, along with Finland recently, Norway, Sweden, and these are countries that are that take are are wealthy, but they're not obsessed with wealth, and so they do take they take care of people. They have uh, a much lower Gini coefficient, as as you mentioned. And uh, Bhutan has tried to copy them, uh, and and I think it's doing pretty well. I mean, I don't sense that Bhutanese are unhappy people at all. 
Although, you know, obviously they, they would like to have a little bit better material conditions and you, you can't blame them. They do need to grow. And this is the whole thing about economic growth. The United States does not need economic growth. In fact, we probably need need the opposite. We need uh, the growth in other kinds of things, non-material things, time, care, the stuff that isn't measured in the GDP. Poor countries like Bhutan, excuse me, do need to grow economically, and growth in those countries actually increases happiness. We know that. Economic growth is associated with increases in happiness, but that stops at mid, among mid, at right about the middle incomes of, of countries. And, and at our level, there is no association between increased growth and increased happiness. Quite the contrary. Quite the contrary. For our listeners now, I want us to paint a picture here of what you just said about the United States happiness quotient is going down, okay? So you picture that. Our happiness quotient is going down. Now, with that as a backdrop, listen to the four titles of John DeGraff's books that he authored or co-authored. Affluenza. How overconsumption is killing us and how to fight back. So, overconsumption. The next one, what's the economy for anyway? And he's telling us about how pushing the economy to a higher GDP is related to the overconsumption that's killing us. The next book, why it's time to stop chasing growth and start pursuing happiness. And you hear that's actually the same book. That's that's a, that's a, what's the economy for a subtitle? Oh, then yeah. I must then I must have missed a book. No, Didn't... there's only three. There's three books. Oh, okay. Well, thank you for that correction. All right. <laughs> so, what's the economy for? Why it's time to stop chasing growth? See how that chasing growth is created to pushing for overconsumption, and how that overconsumption and chasing growth is related to his third book, Take Back Your Time, because by overconsuming and overgrowing, we are losing our time, and then relate those three topics to what he just said about our decreasing happiness quotient. It all fits together, doesn't it, John? Well, I think so, and I, that's what I've tried to do is to uh, integrate uh, these kinds of things to see how uh, we just accept the sort of a way of life. We accept certain kinds of statements like the economy must grow, you know, and that growth is is good without ever asking, is this really true? What are the impacts of this? And not just the environmental impact. I mean, the fact of the matter is that if we keep growing and keep consuming at the rate that we're consuming, we're going to grow us out of out of the planet. Uh, we won't have either the resources, but long before the resources are gone, we will have screwed up the climate and everything else so badly and destroyed the biodiversity of the planet so badly that uh, it won't matter much anyway if there are resources. But beyond that, it's also not good for us at a personal level, at a level of, of, of happiness. It doesn't work in that way. Gifford Pinchot, who was the uh, first director of the United States Forest Service, 
took uh, the two the, the, the principles of utilitarianism, which in England were put forth by Jeremy Bent, uh, Bentham in the early 1800s, which were the greatest good for the greatest number. He, Bentham said that that should be the goal of society. Uh, but Pinchot went one step further. He said the greatest good for the greatest number over the longest run. That is, you could maybe make a lot of people happy in the short run. You could even spread the wealth out and not be in equal. But if you did did that in a way that you left nothing for future generations, that would uh, would not be a good goal for society. So that's still that's what I write about in uh, what's the economy for? The greatest good for the greatest number over the long run. It's going to take a a change in consciousness. I believe it will. I believe it, that we, it, it's going to change, take a change in consciousness, what you're talking about. We really have to reorganize how we think about what we're doing with all of our lives. And this is no small task because we've all been brought up with the things that you're bringing to our attention in your books and your films. Where, in fact, from a certain perspective, John, I wonder if we're not really living the same way the ancient Egyptians were with the 1% at the top and the rest of us are on a, some form of slave ship or slave country. You think there's some credibility in that? Yeah, and, and like Rome, I mean, like these previous cultures that collapsed because, I mean, you see this all over the world, because the wealth was so concentrated in a few hands. Uh, I, I don't think it's just in this country, the one percent. I mean, I, there's a there was a book written that I uh, uh, love. It's a novel that was written in 1911. It's called The Nine Tenths. And it's again. really about Say the nine tenths. There's a novel written in 1911 by James Oppenheim called The Nine Tenths, uh, you know, 90%. Yeah. And basically, it, it is a novel, but it was written, it was published exactly 100 years to the month uh, before uh, the Occupy movement, the 99% movement took place in the same part of New York City. And it's about that part of, of New York City in, in 1910, 1911. And I think Oppenheimer had it more correct. I think it's more 10%. I, I think you have um, 10 or 20% of the United States population, maybe a little more, who are doing quite well, thank you. I mean, I think that they, they have gained a lot from economically from this society, although they may be hurting in terms of loneliness and other things. But, but, uh, but it's still a very small percentage of the population. It's still you know a tiny percent. So that still leaves 80 to 90 percent of the people who are, are are seeing a decline in their incomes, a decline in their life standards, and so forth. And that's bound to have an effect. The first effect that it has is extreme polarization. We see that everywhere. Polarization in income causes polarization in ideas, in politics, in all of those kinds of things. And that the hate and the terrible stuff we've seen in this country in the last uh, four years at least, but even before that, and the rise of right-wing extremism and white supremacism is all connected, I think, with these this enormous income gap. 
I want to tell you a story uh, that happened uh, last night with a family meeting that I had. Uh, my wife Jolie and I got together with uh, our our children, uh, Sarana, Aaron, uh, Evacheska, and Jules. And uh, Sarana and Aaron uh, are living in Haines, Alaska. Uh, Seventeen hundred people, and in order to get there, you have to take either a plane or a boat, unless you want to drive to Canada and come up and around and down. And you can't go to Canada now, so literally the only way to get there is by plane or boat. And Sarana and Aaron live in a community, and they know a lot of people uh, in that town of 1700, and they probably know everybody by face by now. My daughter, Evacheska, was not now, but was living in a building in New York City which had 6,800 people in the building. And she, she didn't know anybody. And that is a stark contrast. And Aaron pointed out that the major difference is that their community is horizontal and her community is vertical. And it got me wondering, and I'd like your take on this, to what extent is the architecture of lower income or the architecture of cities, because it isn't always lower income that drives us to make small apartments. Sometimes it's that cities don't have enough space, so we go up instead of out. To what extent is the architecture contributing to what you and I are talking about today in terms of, of, of uh, isolation and in terms of pushing towards consuming more because internally we have less. You have an idea about that, John? Yeah, it, it is very complicated. Uh, I mean, I certainly do believe that we have we are letting some cities just simply get too big, you know, and that we need more middle-sized cities that will provide the benefits of cities, the culture and other things that many people want, but without being such a massive thing in, in which you have this this isolation that's formed because people that you just can't handle it there's too much going on and so forth uh but there's also obviously a benefit to density uh and there are environmental benefits to density there's a fact that new yorkers actually uh may consume more big luxury items more travel for instance and those kind of things but not necessarily more stuff because they live in small places and can't don't have have room for the stuff so they they spend their money on travel which is can is is a, a much better way to spend your money if you want to be happy and enjoy yourself and stuff but it still has enormous uh, environmental impacts the the plane travel all all the kind of stuff as we know uh, so i think we have to try to find a way to get to things that are not on this massive scale of 6,800 people in the building, but not on either on this isolated, spread out, sprawly pattern that we see, for example, in Dallas or Houston or L.A. or uh, suburbs of, of so many places. New York uh, ha is good in many ways in, in uh, 
environmentally, but how good it is for people, that's questionable. So uh, I, I think we also need to make our small towns more livable, or I think we need to make rural America more in, in a way um, to make it possible for more people to be small farmers, take care of the land, get out and live closer to nature. In our cities, we certainly need more open space and parks. Without Central Park, for example, which was a smart thing that New Yorkers did 150 years ago, without Central Park, New York would be much less livable. Much less, much less. Yes, it's a huge escape valve for many people. And it was for the working class folks of New York in the early 1900s. They, there are lots of books written by immigrants saying that without Central Park, they would have died. And that, you know, because all they had was the tenements and the, and the, and the factories. But what little time they had, they could get out on that grass in the park and hear the birds and do that. And that kept them sane. There's a great uh, book written called One of Them, uh, an account of uh, an immigrant named Elizabeth Hasanovich from, from Russia that really goes into that, just how valuable all of that was to the experience of these poor women. And that, that's the, the whole issue, too, of Bread and Roses. The, the guy who wrote the Nine Tenths, the book about the 90, 90, he also wrote the poem, which became a famous song, Bread and Roses. And that was the idea that was these poor women who were marching, who they had nothing materially, but still they felt that it wasn't enough just to get more money. They also had to have have time to smell the roses, time for their family. They had to have beauty in their lives. They had to have nature and parks in their lives. Uh, that, you know, uh, John Muir once said that everybody needs beauty as much as well as bread. And this is a big campaign for me now is, is giving people the access to, to nature, to beauty, to those kind of things, because it's so important and we're neglecting it. And I can see if you live in sick with 6,800 people in the high rise, that's pretty tough. It's pretty tough. Are you familiar with a man named Obi Kaufman? I've heard the name, but that doesn't mean I have okay. any memory. All right. I interviewed him last week. And you know, uh, check him out on Google, or you might go to my website on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics and, li and listen for a few minutes uh, if you have time to the, uh, time to the, uh, to the interview. Uh, he, he's written uh, the book I interviewed him about last week is called The Forest of California. It's uh, 605 pages with uh, many of his paintings in it. He, you, uh, the reason I'm mentioning him now, John, is because uh, you mentioned John Muir, and I think this Obi Kaufman is a modern-day John Muir. He's also written an Atlas of California. He's working on one called The, the, the Rivers of California and so on. Uh, but I won't take, wow. a, yeah, a very interesting man. And I, I think yeah. you're going to want to uh, 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 say hello to him, and I'd be happy to make an introduction if you'd like. Great. Yeah. Um, so we've been talking during this program a, a lot about the symptoms and the causes of the symptoms. We're time short. We have income inequality. We're suffering. Obesity is increasing. Isolation, anxiety are increasing. We know that there's, uh, from the pandemic, certain symptoms are getting even more severe. 
so we, 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 I've talked a little about how government policies on tax and on labor unions have contributed to what you've described in your work. So we've talked some about, about the causes and about the symptoms. But we haven't talked enough for this interview about what we can do. So let's talk a little about what we can do, because it does not look like, well, I'll, I'll take that back. Do you know of any, any places in your world travels which are promoting uh, the Jeffersonian concept of the, of the small farmer? Is, uh, is, is there anywhere in the world where there's a pro- promotion of moving back to smaller communities and a more rural way of life? Is that happening? I, I don't see that happening, John. And my understanding of the history of the world is that the reason that's not happening and why the whole world gravitates to cities and particularly to cities on water has to do with both economics and has to do with worldwide drought, that when droughts occur for a certain period of time, the small farmers around the world are driven to the cities. First, their children are are pushed to the cities, and then they are driven to the cities in order to eat because the drought ruins their farms. And so... Do, do we do we have any, have you seen any evidence of some push towards a reversal of this? And I don't know. Go ahead. I don't know that I can say, say that I've seen any government. I mean, Bhutan actually does talk about this, although it's, it's such an agricultural society to begin with. It doesn't have any really big big cities, but they don't they don't want people to all come to cities, so they want to they want to nip it in the bud before. Before it starts, they want to make rural life and agricultural life uh, more beneficial. I hear glimpses of this from people like um, uh, Jacinta Ardern, the Prime Minister of New Zealand, for example, that they they value their small towns and their rural life. Um, I also think that a lot in this country, a lot of small farmers go out of business not because of drought, although that's happening too, but they go out of business simply because. They're taken over by this agribusiness, mega agriculture, which we have subsidized like yes. crazy. Yes. I mean, we really need, if we want to do this, there are a lot of young people that want to farm. Yes. Um, that. And, and what we really need to be doing is breaking up some of these agribusinesses, stopping those subsidies, and instead subsidizing young people, training young people, providing land uh, at low cost for young people who want to farm organically and in a regenerative way, because not only will that be good for our food supply and for our health, it's also a a way to sequester carbon and to help combat climate change. So there are many policies that we can do that start encouraging a move back to smaller cities and to rural America. And I, I think it would be great if the Democrats started doing some of them because uh, rural America is where uh, uh, liberals are hurting the most. I mean, rural America, unfortunately, has been swept up in the right-wing thing because they feel neglected. They feel like nobody cares about them, that there's no support for them, that it's all going to the city. So it is something we really should do. Uh, for example, 
we can people shouldn't be told in Appalachia uh, coal miners. They shouldn't be called. Well, go get go get a computer degree at a college and move to a city. That is not the solution. <laughs> right. And, and that's what Hillary Clinton told them to do. And so Trump told them, no, you can keep mining coal, which was also false. But they, you know, to them that sounded better than I'm going to go, you know, get a computer degree. Uh, but what we really ought to be talking to people in Appalachia about is how do we restore that denuded landscape, all those areas polluted by strip mining, destroyed by strip mining? How do we take a CCC project like the New Deal, hire people that, so that they can work at a decent salary outdoors and actually refill those, those mountaintop removals and, and replant a diverse canopy of trees in those areas, make beautiful places for them and for their children. Uh, I think if we do that, uh, a state like West Virginia, which has gone completely over to the Trump right-wing camp, those folks uh, will start moving back. In 1968 election, the most Democratic state in the United States was West Virginia. Uh, voted almost every county for Hubert Humphrey against Richard Nixon. Uh, in, in 2020, the second most Republican state in the nation was West Virginia because we have absolutely neglected the issues that they have. We either tell them, you know, yeah, you can't do coal, but you can't do anything else either. So we have to provide alternatives. When, when you start talking about the government providing alternatives, haha, you set yourself up to be called the big S word. If you think it was something when that uh, guy on Fox News called you the F word, uh, meaning French, <laughs> do you want to yeah. be a Frenchman and have six weeks? The only thing worse than being a Frenchman in this country for many is being called a socialist. And, 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 and we have done something, I don't even know the word to describe it, uh, that we have done to the concept of socialism to make it a pariah, whereas, in fact, many socialist ideas are already in practice in this country, and people love them. Uh, Absolutely. So, social security, for example, is a socialist concept. Medicare is a socialist concept. But it's so unfortunate. I know this is an esoteric point, but you know what happened to this guy, the, the, this economist, Fred Hayek, you know, he killed socialism with his book, The Road to Serfdom, by saying that, you know, ultimately socialism leads to totalitarianism. Well, yes, you know, ultimately it would if it was total socialism because the government would have to control everything. But nobody's asking for that. What we're asking for is, a, is sort of a, a mixed pot, isn't it? A little socialism and a little, uh, a little capitalism and a little... Uh, a democracy and a republic hopefully thrown in <laughs> and, and maybe some time maybe some time to pursue happiness and stop chasing growth uh, yes yeah. and that's in fact what the scandinavian and nordic countries have done uh and they are the precisely the countries at, at hayek pointed to sweden as an example of this socialism that was going to lead to serfdom sweden is now considered by even right-wing groups like the heritage foundation to be among the freest and most democratic countries on the earth. The United States has now sunk to something like number 57 in the uh, uh, world freedom uh, and, and good government, uh, oh, 
the democratic, how democratic is your country, while countries like uh, the Scandinavian countries are all in the top 10. So this kind of, of social democracy, maybe you want to call it that instead of socialism, has actually led to more freedom, more equality, and a better life for people. Now, we don't have to call it socialism. I think we should just say, hey, this is what the New Deal was about. The, the, the uh, CCC was a hugely popular uh, program. And polls show that a vast majority of Americans would favor another program of that type. You know, what, they, what many of them don't like is when they think that people are just getting paid money for doing nothing. But, yeah. but there's great support for it would be great support, I think, for a program to hire unemployed miners to restore the environment of Appalachia. I really believe that's true. And actually, as you well know, there's evidence that uh, there's very strong evidence indicating that there is good reason economically to pay people for doing nothing, because it turns that's out true. that we make more money by paying them to do nothing than it costs when we don't pay them to do nothing. But we're gonna, we've only got about 10 minutes left at the most, and I promised my producer, Pamela Berry, and I promised, uh, uh, I mean, my producer, Charlie Deist, and our marketing director, Pamela Berry, that I would give you time to talk about your latest and greatest project. So let's do that now. Tell us about the movie you're making about Stuart Udall, uh, the Secretary of the Interior under Presidents Kennedy and Johnson. Well, Stu Udall was a remarkable character, especially considering his background. He grew up in rural Arizona, in the middle of nowhere, a little town, desert town called St. John's, in a Mormon ranching family, uh, but grew to be one of the most progressive figures in American uh, history. Uh, early on, I mean, he, he uh, took on issues like race. Uh, he was a basketball star, for example, at the University of Arizona right after World War II. He served in World War II, and then he, he was a basketball star, led the University of Arizona to its first National Invitational Tournament, but also fought and successfully to integrate the University of Arizona, which had black students, but black students couldn't eat in the cafeteria. They had separate, so-called separate but equal facilities and so forth. Udall <coughs> said, no, my friends are coming with me to the cafeteria, and you try to do something about it. And what the university did was change the policy. Uh, he then was a congressman and then was appointed by Kennedy to be the uh, interior secretary, whereupon he also took on racism because he discovered that the Washington Redskins, then called the Redskins football team, were the only team in, in pro football that would not hire black players. And he said, well, you know, the Redskins play in the national stadium. The Department of the Interior leases the national stadium. So if you want us to keep le leasing the stadium to you, you will hire at least two black players in, uh, before the next season, or you're not going to play in the national stadium. Of course, the Redskins then came. The interesting thing about it was they hired two exceptional black players who took the team from being mediocre to being very good. And the Washington Post editorialized that Udall should have been named pro football coach of the year <laughs> because of what he had done. But he was, he's also responsible for almost all of the major environmental legislation that we now take for granted. It was Stuart Udall who pushed things like the Clean Air and Water uh, Acts, the uh, Endangered Species Act, which 
only passed partly during Kennedy and Johnson and then was added to by Nixon. The EPA, same thing, Nixon. Uh, but that all was started by Udall. Udall not only promoted environment, it created dozens of national parks. Uh, he um, looked at issues like a pesticide overuse and mining destruction, uh, mining reclamation acts and, and uh, so many things. And um, he also was a great promoter of culture and the arts. He got uh, John F. Kennedy to invite Robert Frost to give a poem at Kennedy's inauguration. Uh, you know, was friends with Frost. He was about peace and uh, he went with Robert Frost in 1962 to the Soviet Union to meet with Premier Khrushchev to talk about arms reductions. Uh, that wasn't part of his job as interior. It was just something that he, he wanted to do. And uh, he was involved in the, uh, in the arts in terms of promoting and being one of the first people to call for a national endowments for the arts and the humanities and so forth in the United States. A, a hugely complex figure uh, who, I, I mean, I, I can, can, uh, can do more, but I, I'll go past that. After he left Interior, Udall spent 20 years of his life working and fighting for victims of the atomic age, particularly folks called downwinders who got cancers because they were in the path of the uh, fallout from atmospheric testing in the Nevada desert. Thousands of people got, got cancer as a result of this cavalier explosion of uh, nuclear bombs in the desert. He also spent his time uh, fighting for compensation and, and support for the Navajo uranium miners who also died by the hundreds and hundreds who were digging the uranium to make these bombs. And he wrote a book called The Myths of August about how our foreign policy had become secretive and, and untransparent and how this was something that would, would kill uh, a government. And in the later years of his life, he, he really campaigned for um, the issue of climate change, which in the 60s, he was the first American politician ever to talk about. It, Stuart Udall was talking about climate change and how it would flood the city. Uh, our coastal cities and destroy us in 19 in 64 or 65 nobody else was talking about climate change then so this this guy was way way ahead of his time he's a fascinating character and his life revolved around what i call the politics of beauty that beauty was the thing that you know could could bring us together the natural world beauty of design human design in our cities uh, all of this kind of thing. I'm going on too long, but I just want to convey how exciting I excited I am about about this story and this character. I'm, you're not going on too long. I wanted you to talk about Stuart uh, Udall. Uh, just to finish up here, when when do you uh, anticipate uh, this film will be available to the public? Uh, I'm hoping to finish the film uh, just a little over a year from now. Okay. So. Uh, on public television, hopefully by the summer of 2022. John, you get to get almost the last word in. I get the last, last word in. Okay. Uh, for the almost last word in, anything you want to say to our listeners to sort of sum up what we've been talking about? Well, this has been very enjoyable. And I, I mean, I think just to to understand how these issues come together. And I think to understand that 
inequality, which I fully agree with you, is the big issue facing America. We absolutely have to confront. But inequality does not just exist in the material sense. It doesn't just exist in money terms, like the minimum wage and so forth. Inequality also exists in many other ways, our access to beauty, to art, to parks, to uh, think, you know, uh, to health, in, and not just health care, but health. I think we're often very, very focused on health care, but we don't pay much attention to health in, in itself and what would make us healthier and make us maybe have to spend less money overall on health care. So we have to see that all of these things are connected, that uh, it's really about bread and roses. That's a term I often use. And that for a long time, we put all the emphasis on the bread and we let the roses wilt and it's time to water them again. John, it's been an honor to have you here today on Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. And it's been a pleasure and an honor for me to spend time with you. And should you come down to California, uh, to the coast, uh, for any reason, if you're in the Fort Bragg area, we will have a guest room for you with roses uh, awaiting you. So thank you you very very much. much. The pleasure was mine. Thank you very much. And thank you all for joining me for today's broadcast of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, with a special thanks to our producer, Charlie Deist, our marketing director, Pamela Bieri, and our webmaster, James Albero, whose teamwork make this broadcast possible. The preceding program was brought to you also by Thanksgiving Coffee. The founder of Thanksgiving Coffee, Paul Katzif, is a social worker and political activist who has literally improved the lives of millions of coffee growers around the world. Paul has created three special mind, body, health, and politics coffee blends, and he donates 20% of all internet sales of these mind, body, health, and politics special blends to the COVID Response Network. Check that out on Google, COVID Response Network, a nonprofit 501c3 whose mission is to protect California's North Coast from COVID. Go to the Thanksgiving Coffee Company website, buy Mind, Body, Health, and Politics coffee, and support both this program, Mind, Body, Health, and Politics, and the COVID Response Network, which, which is functioning to spare injury and save lives. Please join me next Tuesday at 9 o'clock Pacific Standard Time for our next stimulating broadcast of Mind, Body, Health, and Politics. Until then, this is Dr. Richard Lewis Miller reminding you that good health is worth fighting for and is essential for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Thank you.